Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Benjamin Ensor, Director of Research and Strategy at 11FS. In today's episode, we're asking how important is trust to financial services in 2023? Trust is often considered to be the most important currency a financial institution can hold. But how it's earned, how it's lost, or even how it's defined is much more difficult to determine. As we move into an increasingly digital world where people can withdraw funds and switch accounts in a matter of hours or days, depending on where they might be in the world, are customers empowered enough that they don't have to implicitly trust their financial services companies anymore? So in this show, we've invited a panel of outstanding experts to discuss how do financial services companies gain trust, how is it lost, and does trust still matter? So we'll discuss all this and more in today's show, but first, a few brief messages. Hello and welcome, LFG people, to Fintech Insider, Blockchain Insider, 11FS Spotlight, 11FS Explores, Open Mic Night, After Dark. Through our podcasts, videos, newsletters, and live events, we have a direct line to a truly global fintech community. So if you're looking to sponsor and collaborate on content that connects with everybody from fintech beginners to the biggest VCs, then chat to our team at sponsors at 11fs.com or visit 11fs.com to find out more. Long live the community. Okay, let's get started. As always, I'm joined by a panel of outstanding guests who are going to shed some light on this crucial question. First of all, it's a welcome return to Fintech Insider to Mark Mullen, Chief Executive of Atom. Thank you so much for being here, Mark, in person, which is always a special treat. Can you remind our listeners about you and about Atom, please? Sure. So, so I'm the founding Chief Executive of Atom. It's a business that's now been running for nine years, which is quite shocking. Before that, I was the chief executive of First Direct. I've spent 33 years in banking and financial services, which is even more shocking and disappointing, but there you go. And I'm delighted to be here. Fantastic. Wonderful. Thank you. We have another return uh, to Fintech Insider for Cynthia Merlos, who is Chief Operating Officer and co-founder of Vexi. So welcome back to you too, Cynthia. What should our audience know about you and about Vexi? Hi, Benjamin. Thanks for having me again. Well, I'm Mexican. I'm the CEO of Vexi, as you just said. Vexi is a new bank based in Mexico, and our main goal is to expand financial inclusion in our country and in Latin America, and we are doing so by issuing, issuing the first credit card for 80% of the population that it has no access to uh, traditional banks. Fantastic. Welcome back. And finally, it's a welcome return to Fintech Insider for one of my favorite Canadians, Bob McLean, Senior Vice President and Head of Technology Operations and Implementation at Coastal Community Bank. Welcome back, Bob. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about you and your shiny new role, please? Thanks for the welcome back, Benjamin. You're one of my favorite 11s, if I can then say that out loud. Um, <laughs> and, you know, pleasure to be here at the bank, um, serving communities in Washington State and championing the small business person. And in my role, it's a really exciting time as we get to rewrite our future on how we use technology to be differentiated in the market. And uh, that's already been on strong display here in the bank through our banking as a service partnerships. And so it's a really exciting place to be. 
Wonderful. I'm particularly delighted because the three of you together have got experience of established firms, of new firms, of big firms, of small firms. Um, so I think you're going to bring together some very diverse perspectives. So I thought we'd start by discussing well, what trust is, you know, how is it gained and, and why is it so crucial to financial services? I think I'm going to throw this first question to you, Bob. What is trust in a financial services context? Because trust is one of those words that you think you know what it means, and then you stop for a minute and think, well, hang on, there's, there's more to it than just one thing. Can you, how do you sort of unpack trust? What do you think of as sort of some of the elements within trust? I think we're going to get into a ton of layers of that nuance in this discussion, which is really exciting. Uh, for customers, I think it starts with uh, I trust you, financial services provider, whichever flavor of that you might be, I trust you not to lose my money. I think it's that foundational, fundamental sort of, I trust you if I give you this dollar, that when I want that dollar back, that I can get it. I think that's the place that it starts. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I think there's been research studies that we've all consumed and conversations we've had with you know, family, friends, customers along all of our journeys, that we know that that's not the only answer to that question. Um, you know, I may choose to join a particular financial institution because there's those visual cues of trust, you know, the bank branch down the street on the corner. Um, that's not true for those that are uh, choosing a model with a digital only presence. So how do you emulate that trusted uh, surface when you don't have that physical infrastructure. That's been a really interesting conversation to see evolve over time. I'm sure you know Mark probably has a ton of thoughts about that. Um, in the kind of space we play in today, I think trust naturally evolves to, I trust you to uh, you know, hold and keep secure my data. It's not the dollar mm -hmm. bill, or in our case, the loony coin that we're sliding over the coin here to the bank teller anymore, right? All the money is all ones and zeros underneath the covers. So foundationally now, I think financial services is about being trusted stewards of people's data. And, um, you know, there's a whole host of um, interesting examples in the market where that has been broken almost every time. We're obviously going to talk a lot today, I think, about how trust is broken and how quickly that can unravel and then what happens. Cynthia, can I bring you in on this? Why is, why is trust so important to financial services? I think we all understand that trust is more important in financial services than the many industries. Though obviously, you know, healthcare and others, you know, trust is crucial too. Why is it, why does trust matter in financial services? Way, uh, well, I agree with Barb that definitely it's not just the fact of, of not losing the customer's money or data, but also I think it's very important the trust in the, in, in the length in which you can help the customers meet or make progress toward their financial goals. So that's also a driver of trust. And it's very important because at the end, the trust in financial services have competitive reputational benefits and enable us to expand and extend customer relationships. Definitely, I believe when trust is weak, we lose those benefits and we have to fight harder to win business. Mark, I really want to bring you in because um, Cynthia is talking about competitive benefits and so on. And you talked about setting up Atom Bank nine years ago. And obviously that was at a time shortly after the global financial crisis when trust in financial institutions around the world was best damaged. Um, 
How do you think about trust? How did you set out trying to create trust? Oh, I think it's 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 part of, I, I hope at least, the whole purpose of the company and the whole reason the company was created, which was a belief that we could create a business model and a brand that behaved differently and that fundamentally operated differently from the business models that, that still dominate certainly UK banking, if not banking more generally globally. And that means that you want to establish a set of um, policies that are transparent and uh, decodable and understandable um, right from the get-go. Um, so it's not, it's, you know, trust is a, a small little word with a whole bunch of meaning. And, and some of that meaning is about behavior and some of that meaning is about reputation and some of that meaning is about longevity and familiarity and scale. Big things seem a bit more trustworthy than little things, for mm. example. New things seem a little less trustworthy than old things. But, but we often find ourselves in a position where, in fact, our experience is the opposite. Big things turn out to be less trustworthy than little things and new things turn out to be more trustworthy than old things. So what you've got to try and do is to really have a belief set in a set of policies and processes and behaviors. What are you going to do to make money? Because that's what the purpose of business is at one level. And what are you not going to do? And it's really difficult to make an honest buck in banking. In other words, it's really easy to make a buck at the expense of somebody, mm -hmm. but it's really difficult to make money with the cooperation and support of somebody. And we're obviously trying to do the latter. I love that distinction you've just drawn. That's such a great distinction that, that many people miss. Um, Cynthia, how have you thought about this as you, you know, with, with Vexi, you know, establishing a new brand? Have you thought about it in similar ways to Mark? What are some of the things that you have been trying to do at Vexi to try and build trust? How are you thinking about how you build trust in, in Vexi's brand with, with your new customers? Yes, it was quite a journey because when we started just five years ago, nobody knew our brand. So Mark must be very familiar with this. Just said eight years ago, nine years ago. So I think the most important and the, the key to us was security, you know? We had to ensure that our customers feel secure, that we have uh, reliable technology, that we had fraud prevention processes in place, that their data, their personal data and then transactional data was going to be safe with us. So I think that was part of a huge work that we did before even rolling out. We had to know that we were in place and we, and we continue uh, challenging our systems every year as more and more fraud increases as digital marketing and digital uh, companies grow. The second, the second part was how we were going to do the customer's trust us and the way we found more accessible to us being entrepreneurs was to make partnerships with strong brands. So we started working with other affiliate networks in, in the country that had very serious and very respected web pages where they evaluated different credit cards at that time. So by, by partnering with them, the, we wanted the customer to say, A, if I find this new credit card brand in this, in this uh, company that I trust, then it must be trustworthy, you know? 
So that was the first path, but then we have to really earn it. Also, we have to be very accessible to them because we are targeting a population that has different levels of knowledge and sophistication of how to use a credit card. So we wanted to make sure that they can easily contact human channels. You know, we use a lot of, of, of technology, but I believe marrying smart tech with dedicated employees will, will allow us to emphasize trust. And also we had to provide them an exceptional and personalized UX experience. They say that experience is the new product now. So we wanted to be sure that being new to these products, they feel safe. They feel we were a brand they can trust. We were accessible to them and the experience was easy and flawless to them too. Bob, I'd love to bring you in on, on that point because um, Cynthia was talking about security and building trust, but also starting to talk about sort of brand association and humans and, and, and so on. And Mark made a different point about almost about sort of integrity and fairness and, and making money in an honest way. Bob, you're now you're a community bank. And of course, community banks historically have been very good at being part of their community and building trust in a human ways. Do you see differences in the ways that sort of banks with a strong branch presence and strong links to a community can build trust compared with um, you know, maybe digital banks that that don't have quite the same physical connection to a, to a community. Does is that helpful or relevant? I'm, I'm not sure. It's it's different exactly. Um, it's different certainly that the community that you're curating that relationship with um, is not locked into a geography. If you're not a community banker, mm -hmm. for an example, but it's it's the same fundamental principles of, you know, who is it that I think that I can serve best? And, uh, you know, Mark, I think, made some excellent points on you can gain trust by doing what you say and doing that repeatedly. It's about those behaviors that you're choosing to, um, you know, put on display clearly every day. And, you know, I think regardless of whether that uh, outreach uh, and presence is done in a physical or a digital way to represent yourself to community. The same reasoning is behind it. Mark, I want to bring you in for the sort of final question here about thinking about how the way that financial firms sort of build trust and maintain trust has changed over time. Um, you know, you talked about, you know, when you set up Atom Bank um, nine, ten years ago, if we think back a bit further, you know, to sort of Maybe even back before the internet, that's like prehistoric times. But <laughs> how how <laughs> how has how has building trust changed? Do you think over the past sort of decade or 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 two? How are the ways that firms need to build trust now different to what people might have done ten years ago, or certainly twenty years ago? So, so some things are actually the same and consistent. Some things have changed a great deal. So if you think about the sort of fundamental building blocks, we went and got a banking license. Why did we do that? Well, partly it's about the strategy of the company and leverage and et cetera, et cetera. But part of it is about the endorsement from the central bank of the country you happen to be domiciled in, which is, you know, if you don't trust the central bank of your own sovereign nation, then where are you going to go? And so- Blockchain. Yeah, well, <laughs> and good luck with that. Um, so, so, you know, in part, you know, there's an orthodoxy about that, right? Which is, it's a discipline, it's an expensive process, but ultimately you get to borrow 
some trust, rent it, if you like, for the period of time that you've got that license attached. And there's a secondary issue that that creates, which is about access to the insurance scheme, which is in our case is the financial services compensation scheme, so that if the worst should happen, then your depositor's money is protected. And that's just pragmatic, okay? But it, it matters to the earlier point that Barb made, which is, you know, don't lose their money. It's a pretty sacrosanct promise you're making to customers if you're taking their money in the first place. Let's be really clear about that. And so, so there's lots of things of that nature that still remain valid today and would have been valid 30 years ago. What has changed is how you manage your reputation because your reputation can be much bigger today than perhaps it was in the past. If you think about the one, there used to be a, I don't know whether it was real or not, but there used to be sort of, you know, a, a wisdom that said a, a complaint will be shared 10 times, but a good news story will, won't. And so you're trying to minimize complaints because then people's network would be, you know, almost exponential in its damage potential. Now, it's not exponential. It's like, oh my God, universal. So if you do something wrong in the business, in a social world, in a socially connected world, it, it can, you know, quite a small problem can become a catastrophic problem almost in real time. And that's life. You got to live with that. And therefore, you've got to be almost more sensitive and to the point where arguably we've pushed too far. It's, you know, we're living in an impossibly perfect world where you're trying not to make a mistake, not to squeak, not to do anything wrong, because ultimately somebody's going to have an opinion, and some of those opinions are pretty amplified. And that means you've got to be connected to that world in a way that perhaps in the past you haven't had to be. And you've got to be realistic about the fact that you're never going to be able to control everything. And so there's that, that, that your reputation's just inherently more volatile than it might have been 10, 20, 30 years ago, where it was much more containable. Mm. So effectively, the, it's become so much more difficult because of the internet, because if you get something wrong, everybody knows quickly in a way that 15, 20 years ago, people didn't. Yeah, but it wasn't. What's really interesting is that the underlying dynamic is, the outcome has changed, but the underlying dynamic hasn't changed. Mm. So in other words, it was wrong to do it 30 years ago. It's just that, you and it's wrong it to do it today. <laughs> That's not changed, but what's changed is the consequences. And so, you know, you just got to be much more mindful about the impact of decisions in, in a social context. But don't lose sight of the fact that wrong is wrong. And right is right, incidentally. So you can, you know, it does, it does have an upside and you can use media today much, much more powerfully to talk about a broader range of agenda items and good things too. So let's move on to focus on how trust can be lost. So having talked about how, how to build it and how to maintain it, let's think about, well, how does it get lost? Um, Cynthia, what do you think are some of the biggest ways in which financial institutions in Mexico or elsewhere around the world have, have managed to lose trust. Um, we don't have to name names, though we can name names. Um, uh, it's always good for listeners. But what do you think are some of the ways that um, financial institutions have maybe lost trust? Yes, um, I believe something that it's really, really important to stress out about the Mexican market is there is a lot of people, and I don't have the percentage in the top of my mind, but there is a, a big market that don't use financial institutions because they don't trust them. So there is not a lot of financial education. People feel that they don't have, they are not empowered to use these tools. 
And what has been happening for years and years is the financial institutions use terminology and data that is hard to understand to the public, you know? So what people think is, I don't want to go to the bank because I feel they are going to, to um, take advantage of me, you know? The small, the small prints, the, the information that it's hidden. I remember that when I was building Bexy, I don't come from the, from the financial uh, area. I come from insurance. So when I first wanted to, to make the, our web page, when I first wanted to talk to our customers, I did a benchmark and I started to go to all the financial institutions and to see how they communicated the information to the customers. And it was so hard to me to understand what was the annual interest rate, something as simple <laughs> as that, you know? So uh, definitely, I think that now that we are more digital than ever, that you don't go to a branch, you don't have a face that you will get eventually get familiar with, you have to provide that information. You have to get it clear. And that's the way, not doing it is a way of, of losing the trust of the customers. And of course, uh, breaches on your security or your customers getting to know that you use their data to sell it to somebody else is a reputational damage that I see very hard to recover from. Bob, I'd love to bring you in. Um, the, the most obvious, most recent example of a bank suddenly losing trust is, of course, Silicon Valley Bank. Um, Mark made a really interesting point about, you know, doing good things versus doing bad things and so on. One of the interesting things about the Silicon Valley Bank collapse is it's not obvious that there was lots of wrongdoing. There are mistakes, yes, you know, things badly managed, yes. Actual wrongdoing, not much evidence that I've seen has come out yet. That may, may turn out not to be the case. Um, Bob, what, what do you think happened there? Because clearly there's a collapse of trust between the bank and its community. But bang, woof, just went. I mean, what, what, what do you think happened there? I think this feels like a real-time evolution of which elements of trust are more important happening right in front of us all. Um, this was not, I don't think, uh, customers not trusting Silicon Valley Bank to lose their money, so quite different than an FTX story here. To me, this seemed more like, I don't trust you right now to allow me to access my money when I want to or at the speed that I need to. Um, you know, I think that uh, Russian contagion of, you know, a purely digital run on a bank was more about, I need to make sure that I can access these funds when I need them versus I believe they're going to disappear. And I think that that was sort of the pile on that happened is I better not be the last one out the door because um, let's make sure that I can take these funds, put them somewhere that I still feel safe that I can get at them in the timely manner. That appeared to be more, to me, what was happening at Silicon Valley Bank. Yeah, absolutely. We actually asked um, on social media, we asked you, our listeners, um, whether you think the public's trust in financial services has been shaken by the Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse. Uh, oh, it says collapses. I'm not sure Credit Suisse quite collapsed, but you know the, 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 <laughs> the scrutiny of Credit Suisse, let's say. Um, and so of those of you who responded, 63% uh, of you said yes, you think the public's trust uh, has been shaken. 30% uh, said no, 7% of you weren't sure. Mark, how do you how do you think about that when you've got sort of is there a risk of contagion when 
you know, one bank does something, either something bad or, or something bad happens to a bank, what do you do at Atom? Do you sort of sit in a, in a room together and say, okay, what do we do? I mean, how do you think about that sort of risk of a sort of wider impact? Oh, that's a very real risk. So uh, you're seeing that materialize uh, right now in North America. You know, uh, First Republic's in the news today. Um, and, and obviously that's off the back of SVB and there's been a whole bunch of other sort of rumblings. But, and that is why, incidentally, the US regulator has been very swift to step up and say that they're essentially guaranteeing uh, deposits uh, and they're guaranteeing the stability of the UK bank, US banking se uh, sector because that talks to confidence and confidence and trust are very, very closely aligned when it comes to banking and that's because of how banks actually work. You know, there's an upside to banks. Your listeners may, may be shocked and surprised to hear that <laughs> because, because banks are so often in the news for, you know, troubling reasons. But the upside of banks is leverage, and that leverage is obviously fueling economic growth. And, and that economic growth matters to people's lives because it allows them to accelerate buying decisions and invest for the future. So, so that's what banks do, and that's what they're for. And if they're not doing that, then, <laughs> you know, you really need to be scratching your head wondering what in hell the uh, hell's else name they're for. There's a downside when, when the, 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 the benefits of that leverage are reversed because leverage, when it, when it stops working, you know, has an equal, almost an opposite effect. Uh, highly leveraged businesses, when, when they get into trouble, get into trouble quickly. And, 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 and ultimately, um, that can be, you know, very disturbing, as you've seen in the case of SVB. Um, and so contagion is something you've got to be mindful about. And the question becomes, well, okay, what do you do about it? Firstly, you run, in our case, a conservative and defensive business model. You know, we're not a risk-taking bank in the sense that we've got anything exotic going on in the, in the bank. We're very cautious, we're very conservative, and that's because we choose to be. We could make more money more quickly by being more adventurous, but that is ultimately not, I think, a sensible decision for a bank like ours, or frankly, I would say a sensible decision for banks. Um, but even with that, you've got to accept that confidence in banks, as your listeners have just said, right, has been shaken by SVB and by Credit Suisse and won't be restored fully until they see, over time, stability. You know, you can't fake it. At the end of the day, trust is an experience. I think Cynthia mm -hmm. was talking about it. It's an experienced uh, phenomenon. And it's recreated, reinforced, confirmed at every interaction, which by definition means that a single interaction can destroy it or damage it or shake it. And the trouble is those setbacks take time to recover and restore. So we're not going to get over the sort of current disturbance in banking quickly. It's going to take time for people to think, okay, what does this mean? Does this mean something for my bank, for banks in this country, that country, the other country, or is it a purely localized issue? And, and that'll take time because claiming it is one thing proving it and being it, well, you can't accelerate that. It's a, it's a process. If I may add something, because you said something really interesting about how much risk you want to take. And from the side of a company like ours that definitely are taking a lot of risk going to a segment that is being traditional on their back, I totally support you because something that happened to us when we were, when we were born is we had a lot of pressure to 
grow faster by what I what I say uh, what I define as renting the market, and that's very easy. You can burn a lot of money just to have more customers, provide them very attractive uh, credit lines, so they actually start using your your um, your credit card. But eventually, they won't be able to pay. And you will create a bigger problem than the one you're solving, you know? So I think trust is built also by having the, the customer's best interest is your best interest, then it will work, you know? So you have to be mindful of not just creating a one-minute business, but in the long run, how those decisions will affect the economy and the segment you're serving. Love that. I think the subject of contagion is so interesting with the fact that both Cynthia and I are here observing this behemoth in the middle of North America from opposite sides of, you know, those borders. And, you know, Cynthia talked about the environment in which she's grown her company where use of traditional financial services is not as prevalent as some other places. Probably quite an opposite story then in the Great White North up here in Canada where you know, 93% of the assets are held in six banks. And I think the, the trust nuance that is probably important you know, to think about in, in the Canadian market, I'm not sure that it's actually trust. I would relabel that all as inertia, right? And <laughs> I'm gonna borrow one of Simon Taylor's best comments. He has so many, but you know, he talks about zombie accounts and things, right? So, you know, uh, do, do we, I think, tend to think about movement of trust by watching where the money is flowing or who has accounts where. It's probably fair to say that almost every Canadian has an account at one of the biggest banks. But do we really care to be using it there, right? And, um, you know, so I think switching is one element that we inside of financial services watch for as a signal on where is trust moving. But I think that wall of inertia that's in front of you to go and make that choice uh, to actually switch because I got annoyed enough or my trust was broken enough with my institution. To me, those signals just don't exist up here. So I want to do one last question in this in this section, and I'm, I'm going to ask this to, to you, Cynthia. We talk quite a bit about fintech on this podcast, that's the name. We haven't really talked about fintech in this conversation so far. We've mostly been talking about banks. Broadly speaking, consumers in many markets trust banks and credit unions and community banks and so on more than they trust sort of payments providers and more than they trust fintechs. Mark talked about, you know, the process, the time that it takes to build up trust and so on. Why do people not maybe trust fintechs more, um, do you think, Cynthia? Is, is, is that just a question of time or are there other reasons why people still trust banks or is it that they don't trust them at all, as Bob says, and it's just, it's just inertia? Well, um, there is two things in, in Mexico, at least. The customers historically don't trust financial institutions. So as fintechs, we have to take something that, we, that was negative already and then neutralize it and become it positive, you know? So it's not that we started in a market where everybody loved their banks. There is a survey that says that a millennial prefers to go to the dentist than, than going to a, a branch bank, a bank branch, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I think we are changing things. I was just saying, uh, looking at a, a survey of EY 
they conducted a survey for 2,000 customers of different geographies, gender, wealth tiers, and they found out that 37% say a fintech firm is their most trusted financial service versus 33% that mentioned a traditional bank. So uh, I think there is a lot to do still, but we're in the right path if people is, th is thinking like that. And the same survey said that 25% of Gen Z and 49% of millennials name uh, FinTech as their most trusted financial bank. Brand, I'm sorry. Thank you. Okay, well, let's move on to our next section. And before we do that, we're just gonna take a quick break and then we will be back very shortly. A lot of you know 11FS for our chart-topping podcasts, our events, videos, reports, and a bunch of other cool stuff that we do. But what a lot of you don't know is that this is just all our side hustle. We do so much more than that. At 11FS Ventures, we're partnering with ambitious businesses around the world to design, build, and launch truly digital financial services. We are building banks, shaping new propositions, and growing existing offerings that change the fabric of financial services. And our design, research, strategy and engineering experts are working to improve your customer's relationship with money. To find out a little bit more, check us out at 11fs.com forward slash ventures. Okay, so having looked at sort of how trust is gained and how it's lost, um, let's take a think about how much it matters in 2023. And maybe I'm going to play devil's advocate a bit here. Bob, um, there are some customers out there who might say, I don't need to worry about trust. I can just find the best rates. I can, you know, I can shop around. Uh, I know what I'm doing. I just go find good deals. I don't really need to worry about whether I trust firms. I can find a comparison engine that can help me get the best rates. I'll move my money around. I'll switch it. I don't need to worry about who I trust. Uh, they're all the same. Do you think that kind of attitude of not worrying about trust is either co is common? Uh, is that right? Do you think people can afford to ignore trust? I think it's, you know, probably their individual definition or what, you know, trust resonates with them personally, what it means to them. I trust myself to do my own research, I think would be that kind of person, right? I trust myself to spend enough time that makes me comfortable enough to make my own decisions. And I feel well equipped to do that. And maybe that might be true or not, but right, as long as that resonates for them. I think that's great. And I think that's where a lot of uh, successful companies have been grown. Rate comparison uh, sites are probably a great example who have really focused on that kind of audience and made a successful business model out of that. Um, I think that question of, you know, who do you trust for that advice is what resonates underneath those statements for me. Cynthia talked a lot about the fact that the kind of communities they're trying to serve um, have no other place to get financial education and to become informed. So it's probably a very key element of um, the behaviors that they're committing to do on behalf of their customers. We promise to help you feel informed and feel safe, you know, was one of the things that she talked about a lot. Um, where is that uh, adjacent community to you that you use as a trustful source of feedback? And I think, you know, there's been a proliferation of new ways that that's happening. Um, we all live inside global communities now. We were just talking about that at the break, right? You can live and work in two different places and uh, everybody's got a side gig and, um, you know, 
there's been a lot of talk in the media, certainly about um, what people are sharing on, say, a platform like TikTok. This is a place where I'm going to choose to share advice, whether I'm, um, you know, got credentials behind me or not. I'm going to at least share my opinion, and that might resonate with a community of people. So, picking up on Mark's earlier cues on, you know, where we borrow uh, trust from sort of nationally accredited entities, whatever that means in the place that you work, um, how do we then help stitch that together across? say traditional banks like one that I might work with or others to make sure that we're doing the best to educate customers on places they probably should seek advice or the pitfalls perhaps of seeking it in places in dark corners, let's say. This partner question is a really interesting one about, do you think carefully about which firms you partner with because of this, again, this kind of slight risk of contagion that, that you can be managing your company very sensibly and behaving very sensibly, but because you've got a partnership with some other company that maybe doesn't do something sensible, that can damage you. I mean, Cynthia, do you, you know, you talked a little bit about some of the companies you were partnering with. How do you think about trust in that context? Do you worry ever that, and, 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 you know, and please jump in, Bob, and, um, and Mark as well, but do you, do you worry ever that you might partner with a company that maybe you shouldn't have done? Um, is that is that a risk that you worry about? Uh, definitely, all the time. That's something that you are always vulnerable about, but you have to uh, put your processes in place to do your, your due diligence and be sure that you are partnering the correct, the correct uh, partners. So far, it's been very good to us. Like I only have positive stories on that regards and I hope we keep that way. Uh, one positive example is uh, American Express. We are the only FinTech that issues an American Express credit card in Latin America. So that's very in positive. The whole, in the whole, con the whole in Latin the, yeah. America? Yeah, wow. that's it. So that's super positive and it's so aspirational and they have a reputation of uh, good service for the customer that also resonates to us, you know. And we will have to keep our eyes open because the contrary can happen very easy, like this. And that's why we we have a lot of processes in place. We have we are bringing more experts to the company so that we have more eyes that help us do that work. I often wonder if we mislabel those relationships. We love to talk about partnerships. It's, it's bandied about quite consistently, but I am often curious and actually quite convinced that those relationships are almost never partnerships. I think we like to label vendor customer relationships as partnerships because it makes us feel better about them, um, but they almost never are. Um, to me, a partnership is when you have shared skin in the game and are pursuing a joint outcome together. Most often, that's not what you have, though. You have two companies that probably for good reasons and not nefarious ones are choosing to work together. But it's almost never, in my definition anyways, an actual partnership. I think in the, it depends on your team, you know, like you really have to make the best of it. Like if your company grows, they grow. If, if they grow, if they improve their technology, your company will, will, will benefit it. So maybe they are not as deep as we would like, but definitely it's a coexistence it's coexistence over there i think this is a really interesting point because i think if you know 
when we look at the future of financial services, we can see that ecosystems and partnerships are becoming more important. I agree with you, Bob, that sometimes we label things as partnerships that are just a buyer-vendor relationship. But you can also see um, businesses working together on you know, shared products where they do both have uh, skin in the game. I mean, I think obviously the card network's a really obvious example of that. You know, yes, banks are kind of just using their rails, but there is a partnership at some level there. Um, and I think we'll end up with more and more of that. So I think that does become an interesting question going forward is do firms have to think carefully about who they partner with? For example, if we think about banking as a service, you know, there were a couple of American banks that partnered with some of the sort of crypto companies that then got into trouble. And that didn't do much good for the reputation of those banks that had built those partnerships. Um, so I think I think that's a, a very interesting question to think about of the you know, you build up all this equity in your own trust at, at each of your banks, but then if you partner carelessly, potentially you 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 damage some of that trust. Oh, if it's your brand on the masthead, then the customer is going to assign responsibility and accountability to you. And so, so if you're issuing a credit card, it might be an Amex credit card, it might be a MasterCard credit card, but it's ultimately the bank or the issuing name that the customer will contact first if and when there's a question or a problem. And you've just got to live with that. So you're absolutely right. If you choose badly, if you partner badly, then it won't work out. Um, and there's no evading that. You know, the, the, the qualities of consistency and reliability are undervalued. Simply by doing things predictably and repeating the trick time and time and time again is massively important in building consumer or building customer confidence. And, and you know, we all have partners or third-party relationships or supplier relationships, however you want to characterize them, of one sort or the other to make possible what we do. Um, the, the key criterion for me is, one, understand that if it's got Adam's name on it, then we're the accountable partner. And two, it's just got to work relentlessly. You know? and, and, and those are two sort of, if you like, cardinal rules. Given the importance of trust, does there need to be an executive who's in charge of it. Is this is this something that's important enough to a brand that a specific person at the bank, a specific person has to be responsible for it? Is everybody responsible for it? How, how should banks, fintechs, companies sort of think about an organized trust? Is it just the chief executive's responsibility? Is it everyone's responsibility? Bob, what's your thinking on how, does everyone manage this? Who, who, who needs to be thinking and worrying about this? Is it chief operations officer? Who's, whose job is this? This feels a little bit like a trying to satisfy everybody and satisfying nobody sort of a conversation, maybe. Um, <laughs> I feel like if we all leave this room agreeing that it's everybody's responsibility, it's ultimately become nobody's responsibility. So, um, you know, I think there's some key governance contributors to this topic, if you ask me. It certainly begins with the executive. There's no successful program or, um, you know, cultural keystone that resonates across your organization that isn't supported by the top executive. If they're not putting their name and behaviors and actions behind that thing, your teams aren't going to either. So there's certainly some foundations of truth of that all starts at the top. But I think, you know, for the leaders across your company, uh, whether it's, you know, the middle managers kind of stuck in the middle, whether it's the boards that advise you and help give you oversight, 
I think they all need to be paying attention to that topic. But as we've you know spent the last number of minutes talking about, there's a lot of gray in the nuance of how you define it. So um, it needs to be well understood across your organization what this means to you and you know how you choose to regularly execute on it. I love Mark's point there actually. This is some of the things that you can make look really simple but that are actually really hard to do well um, is that doing these boring things right. Um, and I think if you can make sure that your various levels of leaders understand what you mean when you say trust, then they'll go on the path that you want them to take. Can I sort of make another comment on that, if you wouldn't mind? It's actually about something that Cynthia said earlier as well, which is, you know, what happens when it goes wrong? It will go wrong. It, it, it won't might go wrong. It will definitely go wrong, and it will go wrong often. And sometimes it will be your fault, and sometimes it will be that the customer doesn't understand or doesn't feel comfortable about something. And at that moment, you have the old Jan Carlson sort of moment of truth. And if you make it easy for the customer to get in touch with somebody, you've already, you're already halfway there. And if the person they get in touch with can actually fix their problem, you're more than halfway there, you've won. If you make it difficult, and then if you don't empower the, the person to fix the customer's problem, you're going to pay a disproportionately high price for that. So some people in some parts of your organization have a much more profound impact upon your reputation and trust than others. And I would have said that the CEO in that respect has very little to do with it. And some of the most junior people in my company have a much, much bigger impact upon our reputation than I do. Provided you have empowered them to do so. Absolutely. Yeah. We've got about a minute left. Um, so I'm going to bring it back to the question we had at the top. How important is trust to financial services in 2023? And so my question to the three of you is, is it more important than it was in the past, less important, or about the same? Cynthia? I think with the digital world we have now is more important. You don't have the human contact. So you have to provide a lot of hints of what you are doing to ensure customer security. Even if it's reputational security, data, money, you know? So I think it's more important and we have to do higher efforts in the, in the digital world. Thank you. Bob? Yeah, I would have to strongly agree. How do you all know I'm not just a cat on the internet here, right? We live <laughs> in a completely different world than we ever did. Uh, maybe this is actually jet chat GPT speaking to you, right? Um, we've lived through some social chaos where nobody can trust anything and nobody believes anything that anybody says anymore. So if this is not a foundational thing, you think hard about how to put and keep in place and uh, earn back every time that you need to. Um, yeah, it's never been more important than it ever was. Well, listen, if, if Barb is a cat, then that is a hell of an AI that she's using. <laughs> Um, but but here's my, my thought about this. I don't really know whether it's more or less important, but I do know this, which is that facts were facts 30 years ago and they're still facts today, and truth was truth 30 years ago and it's still today. The only thing that's changed is the visibility and the transparency and the immediacy of it all. But ultimately, if you do the right thing, and if you continue to do the right thing, you've got a chance of succeeding. And if you don't, you're probably going to be found out more quickly today. That's the only difference. Love that. All right. Well, that wraps up today's discussion. Thank you so much to my three panelists for joining me. You've been wonderfully insightful. 
Where can people find out a little bit more about you and your companies? Uh, Bob? Uh, you can find us at coastalbank.com and you can find me on the weekends uh, surfing up a fintech playlist on Sundays on LinkedIn. Cynthia? Uh, you can find us at bexy.mx and I'm always as Cynthia Merlos on Twitter or LinkedIn. You can see me there. And Mark? You can find me on LinkedIn and you can find Atom at atombank.co.uk. And you can find me, Benjamin Ensor, on LinkedIn. And you can find out about everything we're up to at 11FS at 11FS.com. So thank you all so much for listening. Uh, if you liked what you've heard, please subscribe to the podcast. Uh, do let us know what you'd like to hear about on future shows. Uh, you can find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider. Or even email us, podcast at 11FS.com. Thank you all so much for listening. And goodbye. Goodbye.